following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, to begin, I'd like to ask you a question. Now, don't, please don't shout out your answer to this. I want you to think about what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the word commandment. Okay. And maybe especially in church. Uh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say commandment? Again, don't shout it out. You have it? You have the first thing? Now, um, I also want you to think of the next thing that comes to your mind when I say commandment. Because for some of you, the first one was very quick and easy. I want you to dig one level deeper. What's the second thing that comes to mind when I say the word commandment? Is that one maybe a little bit harder to come up with? You have a decision. All right. Well, here's what I want to do. I want you to, uh, we don't do this too often. Um, I actually planned to do this because I thought there'd be like 40 people here today, but um, uh, it'll just be more fun and more buzzy this way. I want you to talk to the person or people next to you and see if you came up with the same two things. Um, Okay? So first thing that came to your mind when I said the word commandment, uh, talk to the person next to you about that. See if you match up. Go. All right, I suspect you're close now. You guys just want to talk all morning? We could do that. (laughs) You're not supposed to say that quite so enthusiastically. (laughs) Something more along the lines of, well, pastor, that would be nice, but I'm really eager to hear what you have to say. was kind of what I was hoping for, to be honest with you, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, that is, I, I do want to talk all morning. <laughs> okay, so today we're resuming in the Gospel of John. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been talking about the Gospel of John. And by the way, I, I've asked you to do some catch-up reading, to read the first 15 chapters of John sometime during this series. How many of you, show of hands, have uh, at least started reading the Gospel of John? Um, okay, that's alarmingly bad. So... <laughs> Um, there, this is not about shaming you, uh, but now please uh, read a little bit of the Gospel of John. Try to catch up with us. It would be good to have um, you know, a fuller picture of the story uh, in mind when you come in on a Sunday. Um, last week, uh, in a sermon entitled The One True Vine, I talked about how Jesus used the metaphor of a grapevine uh, in order to talk about what it means to follow God, which he described as bearing good fruit, bearing much fruit, right? Um, he said, I am the true vine, speaking of himself, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, and my father is glorified by this. So it's all about fruitfulness. That's the argument I tried to make last week. We abide in Jesus, which means to say, uh, which is to say that we live in Jesus, we stay or remain in Jesus. Remember, the Greek word is meno, and it means all of those things. Um, in order that we could bear fruit and glorify the Father. And how do we abide in Jesus so that we can bear much good fruit and glorify the Father? Well, he says it this way, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
So it might seem, from what Jesus said there at the end, that the Christian life is all about keeping commandments. I'm not sure how that makes you feel, (laughs) but it's not quite the gospel that I was taught growing up. So let's look a little deeper. What are... What are these commandments? We need to know this. And um, this is an important place for us to sit uh, and stay for a few minutes because uh, before we get the answer to that question from Jesus, and Jesus will answer the question, what are the commandments that we have to keep? Um, before we do that, I want to think about this uh, a little bit more broadly. Imagine yourself as one of Jesus' disciples during this conversation. Uh, as good, faithful Jews... Jesus' disciples would have been very familiar with the idea of following commandments. What was the first thing that came to mind for almost all of you when I said the word commandment just a few minutes ago? The Ten Commandments. How many of you had the Ten Commandments in your top two? <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, interestingly, the, the more common word is ten words. The ten words. The Decalogue is the... Uh, term that is used in nerdy theological circles, because it initially says that the Lord gave Moses ten words on Mount Sinai, and then later they're described as commandments. But you know the Ten Commandments, or some of them anyway. They've been in the news this week a little bit. Um, There's a Hebrew word for commandment, which is a word that you have heard before, although you might not know that it means commandment. It's the word Mitzvah. The plural would be mitzvah. Where do you hear mitzvah? Well, a bar mitzvah, right? Or a bat mitzvah. What does it mean when a a Jewish child gets to age 13 and has uh, his or her uh, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah? Well, it means that they become a son, bar, or daughter, bat, of the commandments. They become a person, uh, in other words, who uh, takes on their own responsibility for following the laws of their faith. Now, that word mitzvah, or it's plural, mitzvah, uh, appears almost 200 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a very, very common concept. The law of Moses, uh, as a a whole, are comprised of no fewer than 613 mitzvot, 613 commandments, governing everything from diet to clothing to sexual practice, to how you treat slaves, to how you present yourself for worship, covers the whole gamut of the life of God's faithful people. It seems like every little thing has a law. And for us, in our kind of modern, postmodern sensibility, this seems very arduous, particularly if we're not Jewish. <laughs> This seems like, wow, uh, that's a legalistic religion. Thank God that Jesus saved us from that. But to faithful Jews, the law, the commandments, the mitzvot, they're not a burden. Instead, they're a cherished guide for living a life that blesses Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Keeping the commandments is a way to bless God for faithful Jews, including for Jesus' disciples. If you read the book of Psalms, 
um, tucked in there with all the uh, other interesting types of uh, hymns and songs of praise and songs of lament and songs of anger and all the rest of it are hymns or songs that, that seem effusively um, glad to follow God's commandments. Psalm 119 is probably the most famous, perhaps because it is the most uh, long. <laughs> um, it starts out this way, happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. The law doesn't seem like a happy thing to us, but this is the psalmist saying, happy are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his decrees, who seek him with their whole heart. And then it goes on like that for 174 more verses. <laughs> there is a surprise. There's a twist at the end of that psalm, by the way. Don't spoil it by jumping to the end. You have to read the whole thing to get the effect. So if you're done with John, maybe read Psalm 119. Um, but it might be helpful to think that Jesus' disciples had this whole collected cultural religious memory, this, this shared background, this foundation in their minds. So when they hear Jesus say, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, they probably had a very clear picture of what they were about to hear next. Jesus was their rabbi, their teacher, who had kept all the commandments of Yahweh, the Father, And he was about to tell them to do the same. Keep the mitzvot, the commandments, the blessed law of Moses. Then as he continues to talk to them, he tells them what his commandments are. Or rather, he tells them what his commandment is. Because he only gives them the one. And now we can look in the Bible to today's text from John 15 and see what this is about. John 15, starting in verse 12, which if you're using one of our red Bibles is on page 878. These are complimentary for you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of these home with you. Here's what Jesus says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask Him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. So there you have it. The one commandment of Jesus. Love one another. This is not a new commandment to them because it's already part of their law. And actually, it's not new to them because he's already told them that he's giving them this commandment earlier in the book of John, which some of you have have read to to catch up with. At that time, he called it a new commandment, but it wasn't really new then either. Maybe there was just something new that he wanted them to understand about it. 
And the commandment is not new to us because we all claim it to be the rule by which we live our lives, those of us who call ourselves Christians. And because uh, if you come to Artisan, well, I I talk about this concept rather incessantly. (laughs) This is the commandment that has the power to change the entire world, but only if we walk in obedience to it. Love one another. Or if you'll permit me to slide into the gender non-inclusive and old-timey version of this verse that I memorized as a child, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Let's talk about that friend business for a minute. You guys remember that YouTube video that went viral several years back with the the people singing the song, Jesus is a Friend of Mine? (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about, I implore you, uh, look up on YouTube, Jesus is a Friend of Mine. I, I, I could try to describe it for you. I would fall so short because it is, um, I, I just can't even, I can't even talk. You know, right? Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. You know this song. You've heard this. Tell me you've heard this. Okay, please. Uh, read, read the Gospel of John. Read Psalm 119. And if you finish those, then go to YouTube and look up Jesus is a friend of mine. I believe the band's name is Sunshine. S-O-N, Shine. Sunseed. Even better. Wow. Okay, I'm sure it's the first Google result. (laughs) Not many other people talking about Jesus being a friend of theirs. Um, It totally displaced in my mind the Gaither song. I think it's the Gaithers, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, which was the the Jesus friend song that was in my head as a child and all into adulthood until that moment that I saw this one video. Anyway, I can't talk about that anymore. Um, There's some interesting construction of the language here. Now, this is something that I think is interesting to think about. Uh, but because of the nature of translating ancient languages and uh, really any language, but especially ancient languages, um, you just can't be sure about this kind of thing, what I'm about to say to you. But let me put it to you because I find it interesting and I think you might too. If you heard the verse, you are my friends if you do what I command you. What's the word that you would emphasize, say it louder, to make the sentence have its meaning? Is it if? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Right? That is a way that you could read that. But then he goes on to say, I do not call you servants any longer. And so maybe we could read it and emphasize the word friends. In other words, not opposing the idea of uh, being obedient and not being obedient and that determining whether you're Jesus' friend, but rather opposing the ideas of being Jesus' friend versus being Jesus' servant. And the way you do that is by keeping the commands, ironically. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer. Do you hear how that difference in emphasis might be an acceptable way to read the text? And it might be that it gives it just a little bit of a different meaning for us. Maybe it might be that I'm a little worked up about (laughs) the little tiny words in the Bible, which I've been known to be at times. It's not that you are 
my servants if you do what I tell you, but my friends. I actually think this is a good reading, not just because it's in some ways maybe more pleasant, but because it's consistent with everything else Jesus said and did and taught and lived. Our relationship with Jesus is defined um, not by mastery or domination, but by servanthood. Jesus' leadership is the leadership that just a couple of chapters ago, in fact, just a couple of hours ago in the narrative, led him to wash his disciples' feet, the act that only a lowly servant would do. This is why maybe it's important to to read it in big chunks because we're so far removed, and I mentioned this in the first week of this version, this, this run in John, we're so far removed from these other uh, sermons on it that the washing of Jesus' disciples' feet seems like last summer, right? Because that's when it was. But it's actually just a little earlier in the evening. And so when Jesus says something, um, putting this, uh, this opposing tension between friendship and servanthood, you have to keep in mind that he's just taught and demonstrated what his version of leadership and mastery is, which is servanthood. The center of our relationship is not power, but surrender. You are my friends, Jesus says, and I will lay down my life for you and go and do likewise, essentially. The idea of laying down your life for others is really at the heart of Christian uh, ethics and belief and behavior. But it is such a hard thing to grasp. I actually think in many ways it's easier to think about literally dying for somebody then it is to think about living a life in such a way that we die to ourselves and our own preferences and needs and desires every day. Because it's very easy to say what we would do confronted with the ultimate decision. I would die for somebody. I would jump in front of the bus to push them out of the way or whatever it might be. We can all think very nobly of ourselves that we would do that. And we might even think we would do that because we're motivated by self-sacrificial love as modeled by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of my life. Right? But when it comes down to something smaller that requires us to act in a servant way, particularly maybe over people who really should be serving us, that's harder to enact. Maybe it may... It ought to make us question whether we would have the medal required to, to do the actual laying down of our lives. But most of us are not going to be faced with that choice anyway, and so we ought to concern ourselves with how we're doing at laying down our lives every single day with every single person, person after person and day after day, because that's a lifetime of work. We don't like to think of the Christian faith as a lifetime of work. We like to think of the Christian faith as the opposite of works. We like to think of the Christian faith, we Protestants, as uh, flipping the faith switch so that we're saved 
and then works don't have to come into the picture. But Jesus is saying, and Jesus is showing us, that the way to honor and bring glory to God, the way to abide in Him, to abide in His love, is to keep His commandments, and the commandment is love one another as I've loved you. So if you're a Christian, I want you to say this. My life's work is love. My life's work. You don't want to say it. I know you don't want to say it because it's a lifetime of work and you want the switch. There ain't no switch. (laughs) My life's work is love. Can you say that out loud? You don't have to be a Christian. You might think that anyway. My life's work is love. And and that means it's it's not going to be over today. You're going to have to do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and the next day. If you're a Christian, your life's work is love. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he starts talking about bearing fruit that will last. That's ostensibly the title of my sermon today. I'm almost done and I got to the title. Congratulations to me and to all of you for sticking with me. Fruit that will last. He says it at the end of the passage. I knew I should have marked the verse. I'm sorry. Yes, verse 16. I was looking at last week's passage. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. What I think he's getting at there is that this is is the life's work. It's going to last because you're going to keep working at it. It would be nice if what he meant was, once again, he's going to turn on your love switch and and start, you're going to start bearing that fruit just automatically because it's easy, because Jesus... Did it? It's a free gift, all those, all those platitudes. And you're just never going to stop loving all the people around you until the day you die or are carried off on the white wings to heaven. What I think he actually means is that, guess what? You can expect a lifetime of pruning. You remember pruning from the first part of this little conversation? You can expect a lifetime of having some of your branches cut away and thrown on the ground where they're going to die, uh, uh, they're going to shrivel up and dry up, and they're going to be bundled up into a pile and thrown on the fire, and you're never going to see them again. You can look forward to a lifetime of pruning. You can expect a lifetime of doing what he says, which is to take up your cross daily. A lifetime of being willing to go the extra mile, of being willing to give not only the shirt but the cloak also. A lifetime of turning the other cheek. A lifetime of laying down your life for your friends. And if you get to the point, God bless you, where you can master laying down your life for your friends, guess who else you have to lay down your life for? Mm-hmm. Because what happens is uh, your definition uh, of who's included under the umbrella of friendship just gets broader and broader and broader. And so suddenly, your friends are not only the people you actually like to be around and who it's easy to love, but it's also the people who, really, they should be your servants. I mean, we don't have that system exactly. And Well, I mean, uh, you have to be nice to them. You have to include in your definition of friendship those who ought to be outside the self-contained religious bubble that you were raised in or which you've come to love, and let's not pretend that we don't have our own version of that here. Your definition of who is your friend includes even your enemies. And if you want to be a friend of Jesus, you have to be a friend 
to all these people and to more. And being a friend means laying down your life one person at a time, one day at a time, person after person, day after day. And that's what he did, and that's what he calls us to. And so I think we better pray and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, we uh, give you thanks, I suppose, for this teaching. Although it is very hard for us to hear once we start to unpack the idea of what it means to love people as you have loved us. We fall short each time we try and we will probably fall short for each one of the days that we have left. But we pray for your strength and your courage and your persistence to be near to us. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be present in our lives that we would glorify the Father as you have glorified the Father. We receive your gift of grace, which empowers us to do the work you've called us to do. We confess that from our own strength, we wouldn't be able to do it. And we pray that we would be granted the privilege of seeing some of the fruit that comes from the work that we do in following you. Help us to see it, that it could encourage us to do more. We pray all these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God, now and forever. Amen. And now, we remember and proclaim the sacrificial death of Jesus at the table of communion. We uh, observe and celebrate this sacrament each week at Artisan. If you are following Jesus today in this place, you are invited to come and partake. Receive the bread, which uh, is our way of remembering Christ's body, which is broken for all of us. Dipping it in the cup of the wine or the juice, remembering his blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. As you take that into your own body, may it be for you the body and blood of the Savior. May it be food for your weary, hungry souls, and may it be an act of unity with each other and with Christians around the world and throughout time. I'll remind you there'll be a member of the prayer team who'd be happy to pray with you, and your kids can take communion with you if you wish. Let's continue to worship God in sacrament and in song. Come, his table is open. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.